if you don't know my name tell me how can you then call me if you don't know my past can you tell my story if you don't know my song how then can you understand the letters maybe it's for the worse maybe for the better maybe better maybe worse maybe blessing maybe curse why do you see so
everything was normal on that night. Who would have known my worlds would soon collide? You were watching me in the darkness, approach me in my moment of weakness. A simple conversation changed my life. Switch on. Oh, 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 Making up the burdens we carry, making all the melodies merry. Welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it's Friday, August 31st, 2020. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in the Mission District. We're in San Francisco. We're on unceded Ramatouche Ohlone land. And folks can learn more about the history as well as action items that folks can take by going to ramatouche.com. And that's R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.com. There are petitions that are active right now to remove statues of colonizers 
So that's one piece of action that folks can take. Uh, please do sign these petitions. And also, I want to encourage folks, if you're able, to pay the Jimmy Land Tax. And that's the, if you go to the Segorate Land Trust page, and if you type in S-H-U-U-M-I, Land Tax, you'll be brought to that. And that's particularly for folks in the East Bay. Um, okay. Thanks so much for tuning in. I was off last week, and it was good. I was in nature. Uh, I was away from screens. I read a lot. Uh, it was really lovely. And I'm really grateful to have had time to just take a moment away. Very grateful for that. So, have lots of news items today, and I'm sure I will be ranting a little bit. It seems uh, exhausting living. Living, it's exhausting. It's just given the current climate and everything that has led up to this, and so many folks who have given their lives to create a world that was safe for everybody and helpful and healthy for the environment, and how much pushback there has been and continues to be. And it's so clear. It's not even like, I don't, it's just, we live in this country that's so, or if folks here in the U U.S., it's just money goes towards punishment and policing instead of helping people and providing health care and housing and basic needs. It's not that complicated. That's what's so frustrating. And people are acting from a place of fear and anger and, like, wanting to punish people instead of looking at the root problems of what's going on. And it's just so disturbing. Uh, positive things are happening in that folks are fighting back? Question, dot, 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 question mark? I mean, people are, for sure. It's just, uh, it's really fucked up that people are spending their time and their lives all to say, hey, uh, I deserve to exist. Uh, it's not that complicated. That's how people are spending our, our time here on Earth, which is a beautiful planet, and there are still folks who are like, uh, I'm going to go put on a, a fucking costume and put on some high-grade military gear and just fire tear gas at people because uh, I like following orders and I don't like thinking for myself. I don't know. I don't, I don't know anyone personally who does that, uh, but you know what? It's a job. You don't have to do it. You can quit. You can quit. You don't have to harm people to make a living. Capitalism makes it hard, though, because that's, unfortunately, there are a lot of jobs out there where it's like, oh, you get paid to cause harm. You get paid to be a prison guard. Paid to be a cop. However, uh, I would like to think the best case scenario. I have my revenge fantasies in my mind. Sometimes I speak them on the show. I usually keep them to myself for many reasons. However, if I'm really feeling the most centered, the best case scenario is that folks who are causing the harm say, oh, wow, I have fucked up some self-realization and... I recognize we all make mistakes, but those are pretty extreme ma mistakes if you're firing weapons at uh, people who are just out there trying to live. But people say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to put down my gun or I'm going to quit whatever private or whatever type of agency they're working for and say, I'm not going to do this anymore and make amends or at least just stop doing it just to be better. And it's something I guess we're all trying to do. Not all of us. Some of us. I am. I mean, we all make mistakes. And recognize that. And also, how can we be better the next day? How can we be more humanitarian? How can we treat people better? How can we treat ourselves better? The earth, there's a lot of, there's lots of room for improvement. I recognize folks listening to this, you might disagree with some things, might 
agree with others. I would hope that the majority of folks can agree that there are so many ways we can be better to each other and to ourselves. A lot of ways to do that. So my best case scenario for the world, folks causing harm, just stop it. They just stop it, and then we can have some time to heal. That sounds very outlandish. It's extremely unlikely. And also, I'm going to put it out there in the universe. The best case scenario. People who are like owning private prisons are like, whoa, this is really stupid and fucked up and causes more harm than good. I'm going to let people go, especially since COVID is just raging in prisons across the country. And there are folks still in detention centers and folks who work there can be like, wait, this is fucked up. Let me uh, let people be free. People in positions of power who don't know what the fuck they're doing, uh, they could resign. They could quit. They could say, oh, wow, I've really messed up. I know it's not easy. I'm not really taught to apologize for things in this country. Uh, however, maybe some weird sci-fi alternate universe that could somehow become us. People say, wow, I'm in a position of power. I have failed the people. I am an awful. I've behaved terribly, and I recognize that there's that real distinction between wanting to not call people evil, although I have, probably on the show a few times, but really concentrating on people's behavior and not the whole person. Because there are folks who might overall be pretty positive people and we can do some harmful things. And then there are people who are overall pretty harmful and then they do some positive things. So it's, it's about focusing on people's actions and how do we focus more on people's behaviors. And especially not what people look like. That's just so disturbing when folks focus on you know, someone who's causing harm and then they focus on what that person's body is like as if they have nothing else, no other use of language or other ways to describe the harmful behavior. So try to do that. This person is behaving abhorrently. And also, also if I'm going to talk about my, you know, ideal world, woo, ideal world. And again, unrealistic and also I'd rather talk about it than just give up. Uh, so Bezos and all these fuck fuckers who have like more wealth than they could ever use in their entire lives, they just give it away. Just start giving it away. I know his ex-wife is giving some of it away, but we need all of it. All of it. All of it. Best thing he can do. And not just to like, you know, big mainstream charities. Like really just give it to individuals. Have uh, workers cooperatively own Amazon. Jeff can just be like, bye. And give money to independent bookstores. And all of these in independent people and individuals who have had their businesses crushed by Amazon. And all the folks who work for there have had really, not all, I shouldn't say all, many folks who have worked for them have had really awful times, including folks who have worked for Whole Foods is now owned by Amazon, you know, and it's very few companies own so much. So that would also help make things much more egalitarian. Get these wealth hoarders out of here. There are a lot of ways to do that. Let's brainstorm together. Hmm. How can we do that? I have some ideas. Maybe you have ideas too. I bet you do. I could perhaps host a children's show about, uh, well, wealth distribution, redistribution, living in a better world. It's funny because I have these moments where I feel like I've lost my sense of hope and things feel things get worse and worse by the day in a lot of ways. And I myself am grateful for what I do have. And I'm also just terrified for what's to come. And things were 
awful for many, many people pre-2016, pre-before I even was born. Things have been really difficult for, and difficult putting it mildly, for so many people. So things have just maybe become more clear and or it's affected more and more people. So now people are seeing like, whoa, wow, capitalism's not cool. And it's like, yeah, that's what folks have been saying since its inception. However, how do we create a world? And of course, all we can control is ourselves unless you have some hypnotic powers and you can hypnotize people and, you know, go for it. If it's for the best, if it's for the greater good, by all means, please. How do we do that? How do we, and that's all I can control is my own actions. And then even then, everything that's going on, like I'm not at my uh, peak. I'm not the best person I can be. I recognize this. And how can, yeah, how can I do better? How can we do better every day? And it's, there are so many different ways to show up. And part of this show, yes, I do read s- news stories about how cops are off. Well, cops causing harm. I'll put it that way. People in positions of power causing harm. Um, there's a lot to feel afraid of and angry about and have to talk about it in order to face it in some way, at least acknowledge that it's real. And at the same time, there are so many folks throughout history who are always showing up in a variety of ways. And there's so many ways that folk we can all, regardless of our ability, I say this a lot on this show, but maybe you're listening for the first time in case, hi, I'm Roman, nice to, not really meeting you, but perhaps my words are meeting your ears. Um, there's so many ways to show up, regardless of what your abilities are and or where you're at. Even just listening, giving people attention is a really honorable thing. Connecting with people, that's what it's about. So I did want to share some positive things that are happening. And yes, if we look at the, at the root of it, things are happening because uh, they kind of have to. And people are showing up because there's people need to help each other. So one thing that was very vague, was it wa- vague? Maybe. Excuse me while I spray my hands once more. There are a lot of community fridges going up across the country, and this is awesome. You know, mutual aid, ensuring everyone has their food, food that they need. And um, obviously there's further to go. I would love the idea of just being able to walk. I would think all banks should be food banks, and people can just walk in and get the food they need. That would be awesome. In the meantime, there are community fridges being set up. So if you are in New York and or know folks in New York, there's a fridge. If you go to um, innerheartsnyc.org, there's an article on community fridges. It came out in May. Outdoor fridges are being filled with free food for Brooklyn residents in need. There's an article about that. Uh, one on 133 Van Buren Street, one on 190 uh, Knickerbocker Avenue, in Bushwick, and the first one on Van Buren's in bed and there's one at 1144 Bergen Street in Crown Heights. And also they, there was a Brooklyn free store that was up in June. So I would imagine that there's this would be a good resource for folks, if you and or folks you know are in New York, in our hearts, nyc.org. And there are looking at these links here. I'm going to go a little bit out of order because it's a DIY show and I don't answer to anyone except for my own conscience, which can be difficult. So there are ways to set up your own community fridges. And follow me on Twitter, uh, not to plug myself, I'm trying to take my ego out of this whole thing. However, I have retweeted this information very recently at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. So someone named Morgan, whose 
Twitter handle is add added up mo underscore. Um, tweeted a link and it's bit.ly forward slash three one six p a w e. So I'm gonna go to this link right now. It's a Google Drive community fridges NYC. And I'd imagine a lot of this information, even though it's New York specific, folks can take on this information regardless of where you live. And that's a helpful thing is to learn from one another, right? So they have flyers. Oh, they've got lots here. So there's also ones I didn't read that there's one in Brownsville at 234 Glenmore Avenue, one at Prospect Lefferts Gardens at 1110 Nostrand Avenue. There's one in Harlem at 352 West 116th Street, one in the Bronx at 5977 Broadway. And so they have, um, yeah, flyers here, and it has like a map on it. Uh, they have an Instagram page, Mutual Aid Networks. They also have Spanish translation as well, and just different um, flyers that folks can put up. And also they have another one, does your business have food headed for the trash? Donate to a community fridge near you. So this is also for restaurants or grocery stores or markets or anyone, any individuals who have food that might be going bad soon. You might not eat, be able to eat it. However, someone else would be interested in it. Um, so that's another way they have on their flyers. I'm doing my best to describe it, the visuals here. And they have a fact, as in frequently asked questions. And then tips for starting your free fridge. Or tips for starting your fridge. How to organize a community fridge in your neighborhood. One, build a team. Connect with your neighbors and or a mutual aid network in your area. Identify other organizers and networks of people who can support your community fridge initiative. Two, start the conversation. Decide where you will communicate and start a group conversation online where you can begin strategizing who and how people will be involved. Three, discuss the logistics. Where will the food come from? Who will pick it up? Who has a bike or a vehicle? Identify who and how people want to be involved. There are many tasks required to collectively maintain the community fridge from collecting food, reaching out to businesses, individuals, and mutual aid networks in your community, to cleaning, restocking, sharing information, making art, and more. Four, connect the dots. There are multiple ways to get food for the fridge. Much of the food shared has been through food rescue, including dumpster diving and non-charitable food donations. For instance, food that a grocery store cannot or is not planning to sell, such as produce, with cosmetic blemishes or food near its best buy date. Make a list of locations near you where food can be collected or rescued. Reach out to bakeries, grocery stores, and restaurants. Try to coordinate a time to pick up and discuss mutual aid with your community. Five, the fridge. Deci <laughs> decide on a location for the fridge. Make conditions that account for, make considerations that account for electricity, weather, and accessibility. When a location has been arranged, it will be time to find a fridge. Look for a free refrigerator on Craigslist. If you're having trouble finding a fridge, contact us and we can try to help. Be sure the fridge is plugged into an outlet with no other appliances to not overload the circuit and trip the breaker. You may need an extension cord. Make a sign so that people know there is free food available. Step six, maintain the momentum. Work together to keep the fridge clean and stocked. This requires daily coordination, follow-ups, food rescue, pickup, and delivery to the fridge. And you can get involved uh, or get in touch at inourhearts at gmail.com. 
And they also have a list of other tips, including food safety documents, flyers for the neighborhood with fridge locations and contact info, scripts for emails to businesses who may want to donate, sign up forms for people looking to get involved, etc. So very helpful, a great thing to do if you are if you have the time and or energy and or contacts. Again, so many different ways to show up, even just retweeting this, sharing it, because even if you might not be able to move forward with this, someone else in your network might. That's pretty awesome. And I did want to share that there are ones here in the Bay Area as well. And I, f I uh, read this <sighs> yesterday. So let's see if where I have saved the information on the Bay Area ones. There's one in on 24th Street in San Francisco, and there's also one in Oakland, at least, at least one each. There may be more in multiple places. Also, if folks are interested in uh, helping share information with the show, by all means, you can send me an email at djrimer at gmail.com. And let's see. I've got a lot of news articles here. San Francisco. Do, 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 do. San oh, music. I should hello. Hi. The music that we're playing on the show today is by the band Counterfeit Madison. And this is from their 2017 album, Opposable Thumbs. I'm really into it. So I'll be playing some more music uh, as we go along. So there's an article in SF Weekly that was from July 22nd, and it was updated also on July 22nd. San Francisco's first free community fridge joins long mutual aid legacy organizers focused on trust, cultural sensitivity, and community-oriented efforts. It's written by Grace Z. Lee. And again, I'm from SF Weekly. I'm sure I'll read a little bit about this. Right off the corner of 24th and Shotwell, situated in front of Adobe Books, is a glass door refrigerator stocked with milk, eggs, and bell peppers. Comida gratis, free food, are painted on the side in capitalized, brightly colored letters. Throughout the day, volunteers and organizers constantly replenish the fridge's supplies, along with the surrounding tables stocked with disinfectant, water bottles, and canned beans. This may be San Francisco's first community fridge. Born out of a collaboration between San Francisco residents and the Mission Meals Co Coalition, going to slow down. I had a lot of coffee this morning. And by a lot, it was like two cups. It's still going down a lot. But woo, I'm going fast. This community fridge is a mutual aid effort, one that anyone can contribute to by donating untampered food or supplies to the fridge's grocery list. Continuing, contributing, 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 contributing money to a dedicated GoFundMe or by volunteering time. Contactless donation drop-offs are available and all supplies are screened for consumption safety. Anyone impacted by food inequity can take whatever they need from the community fridge. It can't get more accessible than this, says Gabriela Aleman, a co-founder of the Mission Meals Coalition. It says, when Ashley Rahimi Sayed uh, first came to Aleman with a dream for a community fridge, their goals aligned. They wanted sensitive community-led support. Aleman emphasizes that food and water are human rights, but food pantries that require ID or a proof of residency can be big deterrents for undocumented and unhoused people. That's why IDs are not required and photos aren't allowed at this particular fridge. The hope is that vulnerable residents will feel a little bit safer when picking up food and supplies, which Elaman and Rahimi Syed wanted to make sure were culturally relevant. There's a perception that anyone will take something that's free, Elaman says, but what's free may not always be the most helpful. The community fridge has put out a call for specific foods, 
like Maseka, non-Goya brand goods in solidarity with the ongoing boycott against Goya support of Trump, and fresh fruit, including mangoes and limes. As much as we would appreciate any type of donation, we want to ensure that the stuff being provided would actually be used by the folks in our community and for folks who would actually know how to use them, Alamon says. There's a difference between getting something like quinoa versus something like rice that our community would consume and want as is part of their regular diet and culture. While this is the first community fridge in, the San, in San Francisco that Alamon and Rahimi Sayed are aware of, it's certainly not the first in the country nor is it the first mutual aid effort in the city. Rahimi Syed learned from local organizations like Mother Brown's Dining Room, Poder, the Coalition on Homelessness, and IT Bookman Community Center, as well as Oakland's own Town Fridge Group when planning this initiative. There have been community fridges in black and brown neighborhoods serviced by these people for generations, Rahimi Syed says, pointing to New York's Harlem as an example. We are part of a larger legacy. The organizers are cautious about the fridge turning into a tourist attraction or fleeting performative activism. That's why they're focusing on cons constant community engagement and amplifying pre-existing efforts of food equity organizations. I was born and raised here, and a lot of us at Mission Meals, this is our community and our neighborhood, Alamon says. Also, being faces and community members that have a long-standing reputation here, people trusted it. I think that's why we've had such a big engagement. Hopefully, there will be more community fridges in the near future. There are already plans in the works to collaborate with even more food equity organizations across the city and continue building the momentum. I think recently we've seen a trend where people who have never been involved in community activism are doing the fridges for the first time, and that's a beautiful thing, Rahimi Syed says. These community fridges are especially needed during, the global, during a global pandemic that's drastically raised unemployment rates while government aid remains inadequate. Rahimi Syed and Alamon have seen a huge demand for these supplies, particularly from elderly and unhoused people. They've been restocking the fridge multiple times a day since its opening on July 19th. We need donations every day, Rahimi Syed says. We cannot keep these items on our shelf. And so if folks um, would like to donate and or need food, you can check out the community fridge, SF Community Fridge, at 31. And the... Uh, Bit of an issue here with the um, web page. Um, one moment here. Um, one second. Yeah. So folks can check out this fridge. It is at thirty-one thirty twenty-fourth Street. All right, we're gonna take a bit of a music break, and we'll be back in a bit. So please do stay tuned.
Welcome back. We have a guest who has walked in. Please introduce yourself.
What's uh what's CID?
what's uh, MP? Okay.
Sure. Um, what made you join the military in the first place? Okay. Yeah. So he influenced you joining the military? Oh, okay. Where did, where did you grow up? What what county? Like oh yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been up there. Mm -hmm. How did you find out about the show? Were you walking by or mm 
Are you talking about the men in black or the aliens? Who would hurt people? Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for thanks for for sharing that with us.
actually, sorry, but we gotta got a few other things planned for the show, so we're gonna have to have to wrap it up now. Is there any one last thing you wanted to share with listeners? Cool. Thanks very much, Rory. Appreciate that. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah, hope you have a, a good rest of your day. Yes, definitely added a new perspective. Thanks. Give a shit, give a shit, give a shit. Worry, you're so good at me, So this is when I'm asking if you're kosher. Then I don't have to give a shit. A single motherfucking shit. Oh, 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 oh,
This one? Yeah. Turn, turn, turn. Uh, yeah, that's good. Testing. One, yeah, two. yeah, yeah. We're on the air. This is WVM, Walter Kite, and Walter Jacob on the Kite flight. This is a breaking news of Abina Cova. We have no alcohol in or out of top flight. Therefore, I'm going to give you one good measure. Delta done. What's that flower you have on Merrill Lynch? Could it be a paint of rose time by and gone on? But when I hear you say, Jocko in the way today, to take you to her mansion, Merrill Lynch and I, Merlin's Town Country Restaurant, Ted Smith, Jocko, and Joe Sachs. Belisera Harris, Ford, Alpha Money, the Harris Bank. Remember, Strike Force, you will never forget it. You haven't seen nothing yet from Meeksfield. Thank you. WVM Channel 2 News, Walter Jacob, and Bill Curtis. Thank you. Thanks. What's, oh uh, yeah, what's your name? My name is Todd Flight. Hi. Thank you. Hi, thanks for coming in. Chicago, Illinois.
Remember, that's all she wrote. And the punster broke. to the weekly review we've had a couple of folks uh, coming in today so yeah our doors are always open uh, as long as there are folks who are here feel free to come on in uh, it's nice to, to share the space with more folks so I'm gonna get back to some music and then we'll get back to some more news stay tuned Did you hear about the big line? Curiosity became her So, uh, yeah, quite a show. Uh, <laughs> difficult to predict what's going to happen and who's going to come through. Again, we're playing music from Counterfeit Madison, and I hope the first part got a... I was testing out the mics on the outside. We got inside mics, outside mics, and hopefully folks were able to hear. If not, perhaps you heard me comment a few things, but I'm hoping that uh, folks were able to hear what I heard. Okay, so I did have a lot of news articles to go through today, and... Most I'm going to go through, I think, just some headlines because there's so much to share. Uh, first is from San Francisco Public Press. Ah! The mic has fallen. In the city, off the map, San Franciscans struggle to keep their mobile residences. And this came out on July 30th, written by Jessica Prado. Again, you can find it at San Francisco Public Press. I, I do love that this is such a DIY type of space. You never know what's going to happen. And also having an open door uh, makes uh, spon spontaneity. So there's also um, the article is also available in Spanish. And it's uh, as part two of Driving Home, Surviving the Housing Crisis. And they have images as well. And it just talks about folks who are living in their vehicles and how there's parking restrictions, which is really fucked up. I mean, everyone should have housing at the end of the day. And then the fact that there's just so much uh, restrictions against where people can't even live. It's, ugh. So for more information, again, please check out this article. Excuse me. At the sfpublicpress.org. And going to, okay. Then... Next up, ooh, this is good. This is good because it's someone else reading it. And I know there are some folks who have difficulty like either seeing themselves on camera or hearing their own voices. I used to be like somewhat okay with it some of the time. It was difficult for me as a performer to watch myself. Um, and then I used to be like, I used to like listen to the show afterwards just to see what worked, what didn't work. 
and I haven't in a while. It's just difficult for me to listen to my own voice. And um, so what's my point? Uh, this is someone else reading an article, right? So this is from The New Yorker, and this is How Police Unions Fight Reform. And this came out on uh, July 27th by William Finnegan. Activists insist that police departments must change. For half a century, New York City's PBA has successfully resisted such demands. I am curious as to what we can learn in this article. Um, so, yeah, you can find it at thenewyorker.com. Uh, let's listen now. Let's see how this goes. Autumn presents Department of Law Enforcement, published in the print issue of The New Yorker with the headline The Blue Wall, written by William Finnegan. Read by Eduardo Ballerini. In May, just days after a Minneapolis... I'm going to pause it because it's very obviously quite a patchwork show. Uh, it's about 40, over 45 minutes, so I'm probably not going to play all of it, but I'll play some of it and definitely get back to sharing some more info with folks. Police officer killed George Floyd. Lieutenant Bob Kroll, the bellicose leader of the city's police union, described Floyd as a violent criminal said that the protesters who had gathered to lament his death were terrorists and complained that they weren't being treated more roughly by police. Kroll, who has spoken unsentimentally about being involved in three shootings himself, said that he was fighting to get the accused officers reinstated. In the following days, the Kentucky Police Union rallied around officers who had fatally shot an EMT worker named Breonna Taylor in her home. Atlanta police staged an organized sick-out after the officers who killed Rayshard Brooks were charged. Philadelphia police sold T-shirts celebrating a fellow cop who was caught on video clubbing a student protester with a steel baton. The list goes on. Along with everything else about American society that was thrown into appalling relief by Floyd's killing, there has been the peculiar militancy of many police unions. Law enforcement kills more than a thousand Americans a year. Many are unarmed, and a disproportionate number are African-American. Very few of the officers involved face serious, if any, consequences, and much of that impunity is owed to the power of police unions. In many cities, including New York, the unions are a political force. Their endorsements and campaign donations coveted by both Republicans and Democrats. The legislation they support tends to get passed. Their candidates, elected. They insist on public displays of respect and may humiliate mayors who displease them. They defy reformers, including police chiefs who struggle to fire even the worst performing officers. In an era when other labor unions are steadily declining in membership and influence, police unions have kept their numbers up, their coffers full. In Wisconsin, the Republican governor, Scott Walker, led a successful campaign to eliminate union rights for most of the state's public employees. The exceptions were firefighters and police. Police unions enjoy a political paradox. Conservatives traditionally abhor labor unions, but support the police. The left is critical of aggressive policing, yet has often muted its criticism of police unions, which are, after all, public sector unions, an endangered and mostly progressive species. In their interstitial safe zone, police unions can offer their members extraordinary protections. Officers accused of misconduct may be given legal representation paid for by the city, and ample time to review evidence before speaking to investigators. In many cases, suspended officers have their pay guaranteed, and disciplinary recommendations of oversight boards are ignored. Compl 
complaints submitted too late are disqualified. Records of misconduct may be kept secret and permanently destroyed after as little as 60 days. With the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, criticism of the police has become less muted. Calls resound to defund police forces and to abolish the unions. But the United States has 18,000 non-federal police agencies in its hyper-localized system, with more than 700,000 officers represented by unions. They will not be easily dislodged. The Police Benevolent Association of New York City, which represents rank-and-file officers in the NYPD, is the largest municipal police union in the country, with 24,000 dues-paying members. When the PBA was founded in the 1890s, it was a feeble thing, dedicated to raising money for the widows of fallen officers. The job was brutal then. Officers were badly paid, untrained, overworked, and thrown out of their jobs every time political power changed hands. They could plead for a living wage or an eight-hour day, but the rising labor movement wanted nothing to do with them. Cops were strike-breakers, or worse. The first unionists killed in the American labor struggle in 1850 were tailors clubbed to death by the New York police at 9th Avenue and 38th Street. After the First World War, the American Federation of Labor began issuing charters to police locals in Cincinnati, St. Paul, Boston, Los Angeles. Management was horrified. Police were not ordinary workers, the argument went. They were more akin to soldiers or sailors, and unions would divide their loyalties, undermining the chain of command. The Boston police strike of 1919, when the nascent union demanded recognition from the city, forced a reckoning. There was extensive looting and reported rape. Eight people were killed by the state militia. President Woodrow Wilson called the strike a crime against civilization, and most of the city's policemen were fired. The fledgling unions in other cities were destroyed, and the cause of police unionization was set back for generations. It didn't help that, in 1937, Chicago cops fired on striking steelworkers in their families, killing ten. In the early 60s, white racial anxiety helped strengthen the union's position. The civil rights movement was gathering force, street crime was increasing, and white flight was transforming cities. Public sector unions were also flourishing. In New York, the Teachers' Union secured the right to collective bargaining in 1961, a major victory. The city's police were next. In 1963, Mayor Robert Wagner, Jr., a progressive, signed an executive order granting them collective bargaining rights. Other cities followed, and police unions were eventually accepted in much of the country. The NYCPBA reassured politicians by promising not to strike or to affiliate with any other union but it quickly asserted its power in other ways. The next mayor, John Lindsay, a Kennedy-esque Republican, came into office vowing to establish a strong civil complaint review board to provide police oversight. The PBA mounted an overwhelming campaign against the plan. One poster showed a young middle-class white woman emerging from the subway onto a darkened street, looking frightened with an accompanying text that read, The civilian review board must be stopped. Her life, your life may depend on it. A TV commercial surveyed damage from rioting in Harlem in 1964 with a voiceover intoning that police were so careful to avoid accusations that they were virtually powerless. The PBA leadership was, if anything, blunter. The president, John Cassez, said, I am sick and tired of giving in to minority groups with their whims and their gripes and shouting. In a citywide referendum, Lindsay's side was defeated 
by a margin of nearly two to one, and New York mayors have been on notice ever since. In the city's large and largely segregated black community, police brutality had been a first-order issue for decades. The 1964 riots had been sparked when an off-duty policeman killed a 15-year-old black student, James Powell. Activists, led by the NAACP and by black newspapers such as the Amsterdam News, had been calling for more police accountability since at least the 20s and for civilian oversight since the 40s. Another frequent demand was for the hiring of more black officers. One of the less remembered lines in Martin Luther King Jr.'s soaring speech at the March on Washington in 1963, we can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. When Mayor David Dinkins sought to install a civilian review board in 1992, the PBA staged a ferocious protest at City Hall. With 10,000 off-duty officers, virtually all white, and many carrying guns and drinking alcohol. Demonstrators waved racist placards, dumped the washroom attendants, attacked reporters and bystanders, vandalized city council members' cars, stormed City Hall, and overflowed onto the Brooklyn Bridge, where they stopped traffic and jumped unoccupied cars. It was a wild performance of police impunity, and the on-duty officers did nothing to stop the mayhem. Jimmy Breslin was there, reporting for Newsday, and he described a scene of toxic racism. The cops held up several of the most crude drawings of Dinkins, black, performing perverted sex acts, he wrote. Newsday had more. A city councilwoman, Una Clark, who is black, was prevented from crossing Broadway by a beer-drinking, off-duty police officer who said to his sidekick, this nigger says she's a member of the city council. As the rally surged, Rudolph Giuliani, a former prosecutor, stood on a car, leading obscene chants through a bullhorn. He defeated Dinkins the next year and went on to two terms as mayor. By the end of the 60s, a racialized law and order ideology had emerged as a sort of unexamined American consensus, and it has basically prevailed since then, providing the political context in which police unions thrive. In the NYPD today, with the arc having bent toward inclusion, People of color constitute slightly more than half the uniformed force. And yet the unions, there are five for various ranks, with the PBA the largest by far, give a different impression. Their leadership, their politics, and their occasional mass protests, not to mention the NYPD's riot squads, still read as overwhelmingly white. White cops, black and brown suspects. That remains the dominant paradigm. Patrick J. Lynch is the president of the NYC PBA. He is 57 and was recently elected, unopposed, to a sixth four-year term. Lynch, who grew up and still lives in Bayside, Queens, is a cop's cop, banty and brash, clean-shaven, with hair gelled straight back. He's wound tight and has a commanding shout that he can sustain for long periods at no-questions-taken press conferences. Outrage is his default mode. His officers are never wrong. Anybody who criticizes them is wrong. Mayors are the enemy. Police grass are the near enemy. Recently, Lynch said, pro-criminal advocates have hijacked our city and state. Law-abiding New Yorkers are suffering, and the police officers who protect them are under attack. That was in March, but it could have been any time in the past 20 years. Pro-criminal seems to be code. Lynch says it a lot. 
Lynch and the PBA deliver solid contracts for their members, with generous pay, especially for overtime, and good benefits. New York cops often retire after 20 years of service, with pensions that, according to a 2018 analysis by the nonprofit Citizens Budget Commission, average $74,500, and with plenty of time to start a second career, typically in security. The union, with its hefty political budget, its ability to launch fierce media campaigns, and the fear it can inspire in every politician who does not want to be painted as soft on crime, has also delivered when it comes to public policy. In the 60s, the NYPD dropped a long-time requirement that its officers live in the five boroughs, and the PBA has fought off every suggestion that the requirement be revived. And so a majority of its white members live on Long Island or in other suburbs. Dinkins ultimately succeeded in installing a civilian complaint review board, but its disciplinary recommendations to the department are rarely followed. In public, the union trashes its every step. The NYPD is not the most insular, lawless police department around. It is, in fact, one of the least violent police agencies in the country's hundred largest cities. During the past seven years, according to a database built by a group called Mapping Police Violence, the police in St. Louis have killed 14 times more civilians per capita than New York police have. In New York, police kill black civilians at 7.8 times the rate of white civilians. In Chicago, the factor is 27.4. In June, Lynch denounced George Floyd's killing as the murder of an innocent person. But even in New York, police killings have gone unprosecuted to an extraordinary extent. In 2014, the Daily News looked at the 179 killings committed by on-duty NYPD officers in the previous 15 years and found that all those deaths had produced only three indictments and one conviction, which brought no jail time. The reluctance to indict stems partly from the close relationships between the police and local district attorneys, many of whom take campaign donations from the unions, but also from prosecutors' awareness that juries tend to believe police officers. Lynch's time at the NYPD has coincided with a spectacular decline in violent crime. His first assignment when he joined the force in 1984 included the 19th Precinct in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. The 19th was a bad neighborhood then with dozens of rapes and murders and more than a thousand robberies a year. Today, it's Williamsburg. The causes of what is often called the New York miracle are complex and hotly debated. Violent crime has fallen in nearly every major American city. New York's police claim credit. Young, white, middle-class protesters fired up by Black Lives Matter and chanting, I can't breathe, tend not to acknowledge that their gentrified neighborhoods owe something to the cops behind their polycarbonate riot shields. A sense of being unthanked runs deep in the NYPD. People protesting police brutality, according to Lynch, obviously do not appreciate the risk and sacrifice we make for them. Marco Mira, who heads the Transit Police Union, scolded state officials at a recent rally, shouting, Stop treating us like animals and thugs and start treating us with some respect. In February, after Mayor Bill de Blasio expressed his sympathies to two police officers who had been shot, the Sergeant's Benevolent Association tweeted, Mayor de Blasio, the members of the NYPD are declaring war on you. We do not respect you. Do not visit us in hospitals. You sold the NYPD to the vile creatures, the 1% who hate cops but vote for you. The SPA was also responsible for doxing the mayor's daughter, Chiara, after she was arrested during a peaceful demonstration in late May it published the police report, including her height, 
weight, and address on Twitter. The city council member Richie Torres described the SBA as a hate group masquerading as a labor union. Lynch, for all his collar, is more strategic. He frames every question, whether it's officers' salaries or police violence, as a simple binary. This is not an issue that's Republican or Democrat, he told a crowd on the city hall steps last year about a contract demand. This is a right and wrong issue. At the same event, Justin Brannan, a progressive city councilman, offered another binary. Don't tell me you're a union guy if you don't support the cops and the PBA. For members, it's possible to appreciate the work the unions do while deploring their rhetoric. Kirk Burkhalter comes from a police family. His father grew up poor in the South and joined the force young. Burkhalter joined at 21, a few years after his brother. It was all I knew, he told me. He was always grateful for the union's bargaining power. If it wasn't for that legislative lobby, I wouldn't have grown up with all the benefits I did, the health care, the pension. He started as a patrolman in 1984, the same year that Lynch joined, made his way to detective first grade, and served as a union delegate. He went to college and law school on his own time, and after retiring, became a professor at New York Law School. It pains me to see what's going on in the police department now, he told me. Those are some of my best friends, the people I grew up with. He says that he understands the union's defensiveness, but not their vitriol. Imagine a nurse's union that hated patients, that went on TV and talked about how much trouble the patients give them. Police unions are prohibited from striking, but they impose themselves through illegal work slowdowns, a tactic known as the blue flu. New York has staggered through many of them, including at least one directed at de Blasio. It is a protest, typically, against a perceived injustice to the police, but also a taste of the lawlessness to which police could subject their city. How do you like a languid, foot-dragging response to your 911 calls? Feeling unappreciated, officers may even consider deserting their posts entirely. In June, police in Buffalo shoved an elderly demonstrator to the ground with enough force to crack his skull, and then marched past him, expressionless, as he lay bleeding. After the two officers who did the pushing were suspended, pending an investigation, all 57 members of an elite emergency response team resigned in solidarity. The gradual departure of beat cops, who knew everybody in the neighborhood and whom everybody knew, at least in sentimental memory, has been a big step toward the alienation between police and civilians that one can feel in nearly every big American city. Cops today, sequestered in their patrol cars, are anonymous, minatory, and much more heavily armed than their predecessors. But the good old days of the beat cop were in many ways not so good. One of New York's most famous policemen in the 19th century was Alexander Clubber Williams, who claimed to have bludgeoned hundreds of miscreants into submission and was celebrated as a hero in Harper's Monthly in 1887. Violence was, and is, part of the job. In other developed nations, there is nothing comparable to the rate of police killings that we experience, or, in richer communities, countenance. In England and Wales, three or four civilians die at the hands of police in an average year. The U.S. population is larger, of course, but not 300 times larger. According to Paul Hirschfield, a Rutgers sociologist who has written about international law enforcement practice, the difference is partly in the basic work environment. American police encounter conditions that are more like Latin America than Northern Europe, he told me. These vast inequalities, a history of enslavement and conquest, a weak social safety net, the decentralization 
police are more likely to encounter civilians with firearms here. We don't have the levels of police corruption they do in Mexico, but we are not like other developed countries. The legal threshold for the use of force is lower. Another difference is training. In some Western European countries, police academies are as selective as a good American college. Recruits in Germany study for a minimum of three years with professors who are experts in their fields. Officers in the U.S. often start work with as little as 11 weeks of training, mostly in firearms and survival. Burkhalter has proposed that existing training be replaced with a two-year curriculum that includes courses in a range of subjects, law, sociology, psychology, and that not all classes be taught, as is current practice, by law enforcement personnel. A clear understanding of the nature of the society they will serve and all its complexities is fundamental to any member of a service profession, he has written. Police work is indisputably difficult. Patrol officers are often confronted with people at their worst and their most trying. In a country that has more firearms in private hands than it has citizens, the threat of being shot is real. But statistically, law enforcement does not make the list of the ten most dangerous jobs in America. Commercial fishing is worse, as are roofing and construction. Studies of patrol officers' service calls have shown that less than 5% are related to violent crimes. Seth Stoughton, a former police officer who now teaches law at the University of South Carolina, argues that law enforcement's warrior problem begins in the first days of training. Would-be officers are told that their prime objective, the proverbial first rule of law enforcement, is to go home at the end of every shift, he wrote in the Harvard Law Review in 2015, but they are taught that they live in an intensely hostile world, a world that is, quite literally, gunning for them. As a result, officers learn to be afraid. This message is then drummed into young cops on the job. The only way to survive is by hypervigilance, addressing civilians in a tone of unquestioned command, and identifying those who don't readily accede to authority as enemies. In June, three NYPD officers bought milkshakes downtown and didn't like the taste. After they mentioned the incident to their sergeant, they were rushed to Bellevue Hospital. The Detectives Endowment Association tweeted out an urgent safety message. Tonight, three of our fellow officers were intentionally poisoned by one or more workers at the Shake Shack at 200 Broadway. The union went on to excoriate the cowards and criminals and pandering elected officials presumably behind the attack. The PBA also got into the act. The officers discovered that a toxic substance believed to be bleach had been placed in their beverages, the union tweeted. We cannot afford to let our guard down for even a moment. Sean Hannity expressed his horror. Upon further investigation, there was no poison in the milkshakes. Maybe there had been some residual cleaning solution in the shake machine. It happens. The officers were fine. The unions deleted their tweets, and the terrorized Shake Shack workers shrugged it off. The cops reportedly got vouchers for free food and drinks. Police hysteria about fast food workers tampering with their orders is not limited to the NYPD. It has been spreading across the country, to Kansas and Indiana and Georgia. So far, it's all been imaginary. In less agitated times, police have a more banal reason to be wary of restaurants. Cops avoid eating in public because they don't want to pick up jobs. Lieutenant Edwin Raymond of the NYPD told me, People come up to you, want to complain about their landlord, get you involved, when you just want to eat. Traditionally, the galvanizing issue for social critics of the police was corruption, straight-up graft. 
Patrick Lynch was first inspired to run for union president by a corruption scandal involving the PBA's lead negotiator and crooked lawyers, which sent several people to jail. He was elected at 36 on a reform ticket. The only serious competition he has faced came in 2015, after a faction of officers was unhappy with his weak defense of the miscreants in a ticket-fixing scandal in the Bronx. They wanted more solidarity around corruption. They lost. Brutality is different. If we ask for stronger regulation, we're siding with the bad guys. Last year, Lynch told City and State magazine that anti-brutality protesters didn't actually want reform. Is scare quotes. Their goal is the end of any law enforcement in New York City, period. Bill de Blasio got crosswise with the police during his first campaign for mayor when he promised reform. In office, he hastened the end of a stop-and-frisk policy that was rife with racial profiling and sharply reduced the city's jail population. He also talked about warning his biracial son Dante about the perils of being a young man of color navigating police stops, a bit of paternal realism that police received as a slight. But it was the Eric Garner tragedy that really blew up de Blasio's relationship with the NYPD. On July 17, 2014, on Staten Island, Garner was allegedly selling loose cigarettes to passersby. Police regarded him and the other cigarette sellers on Bay Street as a quality-of-life problem, a broken window that needed to be fixed. Garner was a big man, a black man, and he shied away from police who came to arrest him. He had done nothing wrong, he said. His friend Ramsey Orta began to film the encounter. Without his video, we would not know Garner's name. Officer Daniel Pantaleo, in plain clothes, seized Garner, drove him to the ground, and put him in a chokehold. On the video, we hear Garner cry, I can't breathe, eleven times, as Pantaleo and four colleagues take their time cuffing him. By the time they finished, Garner was inert. An hour later, he was pronounced dead at a hospital. After an autopsy, the city medical examiner ruled the death a homicide, caused in part by the chokehold. Patrick Lynch maintains that it was not a chokehold, but a seatbelt, a non-strangling takedown, which is permitted by the NYPD. The arrest report filed by Pantaleo's partner said falsely that no force was used. On Staten Island, a grand jury declined to indict Pantaleo. Witnesses who had been called to testify later described the proceedings as focused less on police malfeasance than on what Garner had done. Pantaleo remained on desk duty. The city rebuffed calls by activists and lawyers for the Garner family to release the officer's disciplinary record. The department slowed its own investigation to allow a federal civil rights investigation to proceed. This was evidently a political decision to let passions cool. The Department of Justice took four and a half years to examine the case, and then, after William Barr was installed as Attorney General, quashed it. But passions had not cooled. In December 2014, a drifter with a long criminal record came to New York and murdered two police officers, purportedly to avenge Garner and others before killing himself. Lynch was incensed. He had been feuding with de Blasio, whom he considered anti-police. Now he encouraged on-duty cops to turn their backs on the mayor when he came to the hospital in Brooklyn where the officers had been taken. At the officers' funerals, hundreds of police again turned their backs on de Blasio. Polls showed that most New Yorkers disapproved of this display, and many officers apparently felt it was disrespectful of the dead, but none would say so publicly. At a televised news conference, Lynch said that the officer's death had left blood on many hands, but 
That blood starts on the steps of City Hall and the office of the mayor. De Blasio's enthusiasm for police reform seemed to vanish that night. The rank and file followed up with a two-week slowdown, during which arrests fell by 56%. Lynch continued to defend Pantaleo. He's a model of what we want a police officer to be, he told CNN. He literally is an Eagle Scout. Pantaleo's disciplinary record was eventually leaked and showed a high number of what are called substantiated complaints, including two that helped lead to a lawsuit which the city was obliged to settle. After the Justice Department quit the case in 2019, the NYPD finally completed its investigation. That August, more than five years after Garner's death, the police commissioner, James P. O'Neill, fired Pantaleo. Firing an officer is very rare, even on a force of 36,000. Lynch's response? The job is dead. Our police officers are in distress. Not because they have a difficult job, not because they put themselves in danger, but because they realize they're abandoned. Pantaleo is now suing with the PBA's support to get his job back. Pro-police analysts always talk about bad apples. It's only a few cops who misbehave. 10% tops. But the problem is that the other 90% inevitably know about their misconduct and thus are made complicit. Why don't they come forward? Everybody hates a rat, and everybody mentions the blue wall of silence, or something called police culture. Frank Serpico, the NYPD's best-known whistleblower, got shot in the head during a drug raid under disputed circumstances. The Wickersham Commission, the first of many presidential commissions set up to study and explain lawlessness and civil disorder, observed in 1931 it is an unwritten law in police departments that police officers must never testify against their brother officers. In what modern urban police officers experience as an increasingly hostile environment, both in the workplace of the low-income neighborhood and in the crosshairs of constant criticism by clever academics and articles like this one, it should not be a surprise that cops feel that they have no choice but to cover for one another. No one else has their backs. Kirk Burkhalter does not see reform as the responsibility of the unions alone. Police culture, he says, is the product of a symbiotic relationship between the police and prosecutors and legislators, and the practice of putting handcuffs on everyone for every little thing does not originate at street level. The officer does not have discretion on whether to arrest in many cases, he told me. At times, the code of secrecy spreads to elected officials. In Chicago in 2014, an officer named Jason Van Dyke shot a teenage boy named Laquan McDonald 16 times. The police report said that McDonald had advanced on officers with a raised knife. More than a year later, after an activist and a freelance journalist sued under the Freedom of Information Act, the city released a dash cam video which showed McDonald not advancing with a knife, but walking away. This cover-up wasn't perpetrated by the police alone. City leaders knew what was on that video. Mayor Rahm Emanuel, though he denied having watched it, fought for 13 months to prevent its release. In the modern labor movement, police unions are outliers, their politics well to the right of even the Teamsters and the building trades. They can make common cause with the movement when union-killing legislation looms, as it briefly did in New York State a few years ago. But when they know they will be spared, as in Wisconsin, they stay quiet even while teachers and nurses and sanitation workers are being squashed. For the left, one problem with hammering police unions is that the right is doing the same thing. National Review and the Wall Street Journal's editorial page 
recognize the problems with police unions and accountability, and they duly extend the argument to teachers' unions and municipal workers. Their sentiment is, bust them all. Benjamin Sachs, a professor of labor and industry at Harvard Law School, points to new data showing that when police have greater access to collective bargaining, it correlates with a long-term increase in police killing of civilians, specifically non-white civilians. Strong union towns like Chicago often have a more dangerous police culture than cities with weak labor laws do. In Dallas, for instance, the main police union is not the sole bargaining agent. Several different groups, including fraternal organizations of African-American and Latino officers, sign off on union contracts. The result is both more transparent and markedly less violent policing. Ben Brucato, a sociologist at Rhode Island College, argues that police unions are crucially different from other labor unions. These organizations function as lobbies to both resist accountability legislation and shield implicated officers, he writes. A public sector union is distinct from its private sector counterparts. Its negotiations necessarily include, at least morally, a third party, the public, the taxpayers. And yet many police unions, in their contracts and their ideology, seem to make no provision for this invisible third party. They defend their members against the public and punish whistleblowers with even greater zeal than management does. Police unions represent hundreds of thousands of people and, except in a very few states, have the ability to organize without any opposition from government, Ricardo told me. Ricardo believes that the solution is to abolish police unions. He has a list of ten steps toward that end, including canceling contracts, mass firings in the event of illegal slowdowns, and federal prosecutions for persistent obstruction of justice. Other abolitionists want to see major labor federations, such as the AFL-CIO, sever ties with police unions. Sachs agrees that there is an urgent need for reform, but he suggests considering more procedural steps, limiting collective bargaining to non-disciplinary matters, opening bargaining sessions to the public, encouraging departments to have multiple unions representing more diverse views. Many analysts emphasize the need for new use of force protocols that are known to save lives, but that the unions reject. All of this would require political will of a kind that until very recently seemed unthinkable. In 1994, Senator Joe Biden worked closely with the police unions to help get his big crime bill written. He later gave full credit to the National Association of Police Organizations. You guys sat at that conference table of mine for a six-month period, and you wrote that bill. The unions abandoned Biden during the Obama years when they saw him working on criminal justice reform. And who can forget President Trump's performance in 2017 when he leeringly told a law enforcement crowd on Long Island that he personally didn't mind if they bumped some suspects' heads on car door frames. The officers applauded. Trump knew his audience. During the 2016 campaign, the Fraternal Order of Police, a national union with 350,000 members, had formally endorsed him. In 1968, it endorsed George Wallace. In early June, something remarkable happened in New York. As the city erupted in protests against police brutality, the NYPD responded with vivid displays of more police brutality. Much of the violence was caught on video. Officers were injured by thrown bricks and bottles and often seemed tactically confused. They managed the perimeters of some protests calmly and charged others with batons and pepper spray. Many had tape over their names and badge numbers. Whole lines of police in riot gear seemed to be white. 
de Blasio confronted with video of two police SUVs driving into a throng of protesters blamed the protesters for crowding in. When serious looting broke out for three nights in Midtown and Lower Manhattan, the police seemed to vanish. One heard that they were told to stand down, but not why. They had been busy elsewhere, certainly, arresting some 2,500 people. Charges ran the gamut. At some point, reflecting the Justice Department's interest in what Attorney General Barr called outside agitators, the FBI got involved in the questioning of detainees. As the demonstrations entered their second week, an 8 p.m. curfew, the first imposed in New York since the Second World War, gave police a wide field in which to make arrests, some of them seemingly arbitrary, others clearly targeting protest organizers. In the Bronx, police singled out legal observers from the National Lawyers Guild. In Albany, though, a momentous shift occurred. Civil libertarians, police reformers, and their allies had been trying for years to repeal a state law, known as Section 50A, that sealed police disciplinary records, making it impossible to know if an officer had a history of misconduct. The public's right to know if its armed employees were abusing their monopoly on violence seemed indisputable, but the police unions had fought hard to keep 50A on the books. It had never even come up for a vote in committee. Politicians like de Blasio agreed that it should be repealed, but did nothing about it. Antagonizing the police unions just wasn't worth it. Michael Sazitsky, the head of a police transparency and accountability project at the New York Civil Liberties Union, worked on the issue for years. We didn't know how to frame it, he told me. It just sounds so wonky, repeal 50A. And suddenly we started seeing banners at the protests, repeal 50A. The ideals of Black Lives Matter were now in the political mainstream. Governor Andrew Cuomo said that he would sign any reform bill that state legislators sent him. And a few days later, they sent him the 50A repeal, a new ban on chokeholds and more. He signed. Activists like Szyzycki had prepared the legislation and the families of those killed by the police, including Eric Garner, had advocated tirelessly. The legislators of Color Caucus had given it a crucial final push. But, Szyzycki told me, what moved those bills was the massive outpouring of people into the streets demanding action. For many years, the PBA and its fellow unions argued that opening police misconduct records would endanger not only officers, but also their families. This was fear-mongering. Misconduct records would not include home addresses or phone numbers. After these reform bills passed, the unions held a rally under the highway on Randall's Island. Lynch and O'Meara raged, backed by rows of glowering police. After all their service, all their sacrifice, they could not believe that they didn't even get a seat at the table. I asked Szyzycki about that. No seat at the table, he said. They've always been represented in ways that other organizations can only dream of. Anyway, it wasn't as if they were going away. The unions will try to reassert themselves, of course. He was right. In July, the PBA sued New York City to block the release of misconduct records, and a federal judge quickly granted a temporary restraining order. Szyzycki's office was barred from releasing records it had already obtained. But Kirk Burkhalter felt that, at least for the moment, the momentum toward reform was strong enough that the unions should consider compromise. There's no need for this rift between the unions and the black community, Burkhalter, who is black, said. Black Lives Matter and the PBA, they can each get some of what they want. It's not zero sum. But time may be running out for the unions, he said. How long are these lifelong benefits going to last in this climate? You better get on your horse and ensure the public has confidence in you, because that's going to be the first thing to go.
After the victory in Albany, New York's police reformers took a couple of days to party, pandemic style, and then turned their attention to City Hall. The city's fiscal 2021 budget would be submitted on July 1st, and the consensus goal among reformers was a billion-dollar cut in the NYPD's $6 billion budget. de Blasio said he was in favor, but nobody trusted him. People camped in the little wedge of park outside City Hall, trying to turn up the pressure. Zhu Hyun Kang, the director of Communities United for Police Reform, a long-running campaign to end discriminatory policing in New York, was a key leader in the effort to repeal 50A. Kang has fought the police officers in the NYPD for years, trying to get even the names of officers responsible for killings. People really should have the right to know who's patrolling their streets, she said. Really, though, egregious police killings are just the tip of the iceberg. It's the daily humiliation, the daily abuse of authority. Now she had turned her full attention to the city budget. This is a direct challenge to the outsized power that the police unions have had, she said. This movement to decrease NYPD funding? That's what they're really scared of. She and the other activists took a hard line with de Blasio. We don't want to see any funny math, she told me. This is the time to think about what sort of city we want to be. When the mayor and the city council reached a budget deal, the activists were keenly dissatisfied. The deal purported to redirect a billion dollars from police into social investments, but it was full of funny math. It set a thoroughly unrealistic cap on overtime, promising to reduce last year's estimated expenditures of $820 million by two-thirds. It eliminated the NYPD's payments to cops and schools, but only by making the Department of Education cover them. It lacked an across-the-board hiring freeze, even as other municipal agencies were having their budgets slashed to address COVID-era shortfalls. To the activist disappointment, many black elected officials supported the deal. Kong suggested that the council members who voted for it would face progressive opposition. These council persons are going to have races in 2021, she said. The police unions, already aggrieved by the state-level reforms, were further provoked by a set of New York City statutes passed the following week, which provided new restrictions on chokeholds and surveillance and supported the public's right to film police activity. A frightening spike in violent crime. As of late June, murders in the city were up 23% over last year, inspired a fierce round of finger-pointing. It was de Blasio's fault. Lynch to Hannity, the city has given our streets back. It was cops not doing their jobs. Arrests were down dramatically, and morale was said to be low. It was the bail reform law and pandemic mitigation, emptying the jails. It was the judicial backlog. It was the disbanding of a plainclothes anti-crime unit, Pantaleo's old crew. In July, Dermot Shea, the police commissioner, decided to go full Patrick Lynch. In a speech to senior commanders, he said, People that don't have a clue about how to keep New Yorkers safe, suddenly they think they know about policing. He called the city's leaders cowards who won't stand up for what's right. He declared, We're not giving this goddamn city back to criminals. De Blasio's response was timid. He said that while Shea's choice of words was not constructive, his frustration was understandable. Meanwhile, NYPD officers were voting with their feet. Since the protest began, more than 500 officers have filed for retirement, almost twice the figure from the same period last year. The chief of the lieutenant's union told the Post that the police were feeling demoralized and abandoned. Another possible factor? Many officers had earned huge amounts of overtime between working the protests and covering pandemic sick days, and their pensions, based on their final year's salary, were as lucrative as they'd ever be. 
The office that handles retirements was so swamped that it was seeing people only by appointment. On a warm recent afternoon, I found myself in colloquy with a half-dozen police officers stationed outside the front entrance of the American Museum of Natural History. They were there for the duration, they said, unhappily. Their assignment was looming above us in the form of the Teddy Roosevelt statue that has stood in that spot for 80 years. It's one of the great problematic monuments. Roosevelt sits astride a horse, both of them extra muscular. He has a pistol on each hip and a resolute gaze, too noble by half, fixed on the horizon. On either side, and slightly behind him, is a gun-bearer on foot. One is a Native American, in a feathered headdress, his lower half covered by a blanket. You hear him called a generic Plains Indian. The other is a generic East African, naked, carrying a shield on his back and a blanket over one shoulder. In the revolutionary spirit of the moment, the museum had decided to remove the statue, and the cops were there to prevent its being removed prematurely by a mob. Things were quiet up and down Central Park West. Still, the mood was sour. Do you ever read 1984? One officer asked. He was fleshy and fair, late thirties with a Long Island accent. He nodded at the statue, the closed-down museum, the whole situation. Nah, his colleague said, this is Animal Farm. Nah, the first cop said, it's the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Wipe out the past, act like none of it ever happened. He sounded disturbed, disgusted, sad. Even the blue whale? Yeah, everything, he said. Change is coming, and everybody knows it. But Trump and the more reactionary police union leadership have something in common. They all seem to have missed the last boat out of the bad old days. Patrick Lynch certainly is a relic of mid-century policing when cops were always right and usually white and could take a free hand in black and brown neighborhoods. The social license of that model of policing has expired. A new generation of officers, mostly not white, waits to take power at the unions. In New York, the percentage of African-American officers is in decline as the first big generational cohort retires but the numbers of Latino and Asian-American officers are still growing. Though it is impossible to generalize, officers of color seem less enthusiastic than their white colleagues about the union leadership. Each one I've asked has described a feeling of not being represented. A fraternal organization of black officers, called the Guardians Association, has long dissented from the union's hostility to civilian oversight. I was struck by a coincidence in telephone interviews with two black and white PD officers. One of them retired. In both conversations, we ended up discussing the latest local police scandal, in which an officer was caught on video applying a chokehold to someone on the boardwalk in the Rockaways. The officer, David Afanador, had previously been tried for felony assault. He pistol-whipped an unarmed, unresisting 16-year-old 